Welcome to Abbey Archives, a Redwall reread featuring one pagan and one Christian going over the series to see what age like fine strawberry wine and what age like milk. I'm Kit, I use she, her pronouns. And I'm Izzy, I use she, she, pronouns. You can find us and content for the podcast, including art and links to other Redwall related things at Abbey Archives on Twitter. Shut up, computer. Um... <laughs> It's mad at me because it's like, you need to update me. It's like, no, you're old and I'm not updating you. Um, today Fucking we are, you, Microsoft. Right? It's like, my, my little travel laptop's up to win- Windows 11. What more do you want from me? I'm keeping my nice, comfortable work laptop at 10. Screw you. Um, <laughs> today we are reading part one of Mariel of Redwall from chapter one to chapter 18. Uh, content warnings include the ocean, storms, water involved danger in general, child endangerment sanism and of course bodily harm we also Um, have to put in uh there is slavery in this book yes there's slavery dealing with pirates there's also like i don't think this is a trigger warning but like the hairs are incredibly colonial kind of british assholes in this one they're racist they're exceedingly racist yes um so warning there yeah, the hairs are racist as per usual. They've got that, you know, the the fun and quirky uh, old white British military vibe. Yeah, disregarding other people because we are clearly superior and know best for everyone. Um, yeah, <clears throat> and then racial caricatures re toads and frogs. <laughs> you know what? I know we came out swinging at the start of this, but we really did enjoy this book. I think this I've enjoyed yeah, this one this... the most so far. <laughs> Like, I made a note at some point, it's like, I have not been making a lot of notes, because every note you made, Kit, was a note I was going to make. Yeah, and, and We are it's, very drift compatible with this book. Brian, like, it, it's like the first three books were the setup, and now that he has the setup, now that the world is somewhat established now, he's just, boom, go. He's, he's really getting into it now. This is also um, one that he wrote and had a lot of ties into other things that could come up in mm-hmm. other books yeah like it's very very good and he probably was in the middle of writing some of the other books like mm-hmm. as this one was being written and this is just like this is the first book where we get a lot of those other book tie-ins where we start getting a timeline yeah and also like to give you guys a con- uh, a clue about how well put together this first part of the book is i have no deus ex jokes there are none. There are There's, no Deus Ex there jokes are in this no book at, Deus... at all so far. Yeah, because nothing has nothing has come out of nowhere. Almost everything that has shown up has either been established or makes sense in the context of the books that came before it. You know, so we have the context of these other books. Um, there are still quite a few puns. There are, of course, puns, but like though a pun isn't a Deus Ex. I'm talking about a plot element that comes out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, no, there aren't um, any. This book is very very well written mm-hmm. and it paced in such a way that is like i had a hard time remembering to look up and like write notes yeah like there's like one solid page where i think we only made like maybe one note on an entire word document page because we were just yeah. like plowing through and having fun reading but speaking of the reading we open on a soft sweet poem uh would you like to read it easier or should i yeah, yeah 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 i'll read it okay let me open the fucking book <laughs> So this poem is actually in my book. I don't know if it's the same for you, but in mine, it is actually the opposing page to the book one title page. Okay. 
I don't yeah. know if it's the same for you. It, it's the page in front of the book one. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. the opposing page. Yeah. So, old stories told by travelers, great songs that bards have sung, of mossflower summers, faded, gone, when Redwall stones were young. Great hall fires on winter nights, the legends, who remembers, battles, banquets, comrades' quests, recalled midst glowing embers. Draw close now, little woodlander. Take this to sleep with you, my tale of dusty, far-off times, when warrior hearts were true. Then store it in your memory, and be the sage who says to young ones in the years to come, Ah, yes, those were the days. The first mice we meet are Abbot Bernard and the herbalist si Okay, this name is going to make me suffer. Simon? Simon? Simeon. Simeon, thank you. Simeon. They stand upon the western ramparts of the abbey, enjoying the sunset together. Bernard declares it is a perfect summer evening. Simeon counters him, questioning how he can't see there's a big storm coming. The air is still and hot. The birds and insects have stilled. Bernard cannot hear what his blind friend can, and Simeon promises a mighty storm like they haven't seen in seasons. And like right off the bat here, we get the classic trope of the it's it, this is one that i'm guilty of enjoying but i do it's that when a character has lost a sense usually sight the 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 trope of like their other senses shift to compensate for that so here's simeon who is a disabled character but he has taken that and he runs with it and actually has quite a lot of skills that um the other creatures really admire like his ability to just pay attention to things it's 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 so there's a bit of surface level where this kind of trope can seem like, oh, but this is actually good because it's showing like the, 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 they can still do stuff. But at the same time with the way that these tropes are usually written, it's a form of like almost inspiration porn where it's kind of like mythologizing and like mis adding like a mysticism mm -hmm. to somebody who is disabled in some way. Mm-hmm. Like, well, obviously they have to have, like, something else going on in order to compensate. And it's like, no, they don't. <laughs> Sometimes somebody is just fucking blind. Uh-huh. So the pair moves back towards the abbey for supper. Simeon once again amazes with his other senses, smelling a delicious dinner and predicting that the moles will be there to eat. He knows since Sister Sedge has made a raspberry cream pudding. Anytime there's raspberry cream pudding, there are moles. <laughs> Abbot Bernard decides to ask young Dandin to beat the log alarm to call in... Log alarm. Log, 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 log. Log, um, log, 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 log. To call in anyone who might still be outside the Abbey's walls. They do not yet have a bell, but apparently Dandin is all too happy to beat on the log with two clubs. And... At first, I was like, yeah, that's a really good way to emphasize that this this is like a young version of the Abbey, like young enough that they don't have a bell tower yet. Like we're, I was thinking like maybe this is like maybe three or four generations since the start of the Abbey. Like I'd say like three would still count as a young Abbey because that would be, you know, like three generations of people. That's roughly a hundred years, roughly, give well, or take. Um. And, 
and it, it's nice because now we have a really good solid like like you said this book is establishing a timeline for us right yeah. away we know that this is before redwall the book because mm -hmm. they have a bell and bell tower mm -hmm. we know and this because uh <laughs> matthias is just like yeah the bell's gonna hit the ground and now we have two bells yep <laughs> thanks uh Thank you, Matthias, for destroying this bell that we are now going to have so much context for. Um, like, the more I'm reading, the more I'm getting angry that, like, yes, I know you were saving Redwall, but at the same time, Matthias! <laughs> the bell! Once inside, Abbot Bernard takes a crack at using his nose to guess what the drink is that night. Cider? Simeon says no, it's pear cordial. Once more amazing, his old friend. Then, our point of view is pulled far, far to the northwest, well past the safety and comfort of Redwall, to Gabul the Wild. He challenges the sky with a wickedly curved blade. The storm doesn't strike fear in him, only excitement. Gabul, the wild king of Terramort Island, king of sea rats, warlord of all rodent corsairs, captain of captains. <laughs> For those of you who are not uh, on TikTok... <laughs> or watch I, TikTok videos. All my friends are on TikTok. I get it all through them. They yeah, send no, TikToks no, no, to yeah. me. There's a meme on TikTok uh, that's basically like somebody took a very small object. It was a toothpick in the original video. And people yeah. have just been, it's it's been a meme. <laughs> and instead of doing like Avada Kedavra, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> fucking killed me last night seeing that note. <laughs> I got a key smash. I'm very proud of myself. He's described <laughs> to be a wild, savage-looking rat, which everything oh his God. description. Let's, um, let us I, just let us just let us let us just. So, in all the seas and oceans, there had never been a rat like Gabul the Wild. Huge gold hoops dangled from his ears. His fangs, which he had lost long ago in hard-fought combat were replaced by sharp, jutting gold canines, each one set with a glinting green emerald. Below his weird yellow blood-flecked eyes, this man's got an iron deficiency, mm -hmm. uh, an enormous dark beard sprouted and curled, spilling down to his broad chest, silk ribbons of blue and red woven through it. Whenever Gabul moved, his rings, bracelets, medals, and buckles jangled. Gold, turquoise, silver ivory plundered from the far places of the high seas strange weapons with shimmering twisted blades were thrust into the purple sash about his waist dangerous to serve and deadly to trust he stood laughing in the teeth of the gale satisfied that the creature who had dared go against him was now fish bait on the seabed the way that like gabul is described is just i was doing fine with the description until they got to the beard uh, the yeah, beard is what made me go wait. What? Yeah, like I'm sorry. He has a beard. Why does the uh, rat have a beard? I don't know. I don't know why the rat has a beard. I mean, if we remember, um, fuck, what was it boar? Boar, yeah. Rat? He yeah. also had a beard. But uh, that still bugs me. It just, it bugs me, okay? I know, I know, these are fantasy creatures. These are fantasy animals that can walk and talk and create things. But 
For some reason, the thought of them having beards really upsets me. I don't know why. <laughs> also, just... later on, it is described as being matted, and I'm over here like, pirates were extremely fastidious. Yes, but Gabul is supposed to be the wild savage type of trope, so... Yeah, he, he doesn't get I to mean, be nice I mean, technically, so was Blackbeard. Yeah, true. And he still had a pretty clean beard, because he yeah. couldn't keep sooting it all the time from, <laughs> you know, setting it, uh, the, the wicks and things he put in it on fire to <laughs> give him the demonic smoke look. Yeah. I have not... I need everybody who is listening to this to understand. I have not yet seen our uh, our flag means death yet. I'm going to. I am talking about actual fucking Blackbeard in real life. <laughs> okay. I cannot believe that is a caveat. I have to say now. <laughs> Thank you, Taika Waititi. <laughs> Really dating anyway. this podcast, too. All right. Yeah. Um, uh, also, like, when I was reading this, I was getting, like, the kind of, like, stereotypical media depiction of pirates. Oh, very much so. Because, like, very on one so. hand, Gabul, like, we find out later, Gabul does not go on ships anymore. He stays in, uh, on Terramort Island. Like, he stays there. Mm-hmm. And... So he doesn't need to be, like, quick on his feet as much. He can afford to be laden down with all of this bullshit. Mm-hmm. But it's also, like, this seems incredibly cumbersome just on a day-to-day basis in general to have on. I've tried, like, having a ton of bracelets and necklaces and shit on, and every time I get sick of them, I'm like, no, get the fuck off me. <laughs> It, it is, too, though, like, because he stays on land, it's an ostentatious show of wealth. Like, I am so wealthy, I am so powerful that I can be encumbered in this way and not have to worry about it. Like, there are rulers who have done this in the past and in societies where um, most of your wealth needs to be portable. All these bracelets, all these janglies and necklaces and the earrings... These are all a sign of, I am filthy freaking rich. Yeah. And it's just, it's helping emphasize that this man has, again, plundered near and far and has all this wealth at his back and yard. So, so, okay, yard. now back and I, have, I have another, I have another question. Yes. Where are they getting ivory from? Where is it coming from? Like, <sighs> what is giving them ivory if we don't have huge animals? If, uh, there's seals? Because ivory... There's, so seals, maybe there, but but maybe there are, do not give ivory. But if they sail far enough wo- uh, north, maybe they come across walruses, walruses or narwhals. Because like mm-hmm. there can't be elephants. Oh, why not? Can't why can't there be elephants? I mean, elephants if they can, are huge. Listen, like if they can, if they that'd can, be a literal giant. Well, considering that he is basing it off of a largely English point of view, it's not surprising. It's not, but it's it's also one of those things where it's like you could have and you didn't. So yeah, like there's there's a degree where it's it's like you could have done this, you didn't. Eh, like end of discussion, but also just kind of like you could have done better. There are ways in which this could have been better instead of just offhandedly throwing in things that imply there are other parts of the world, but in a way where it's like, mm, this just makes some of this way more racist. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. You know? Yeah. You good? Yeah, I'm good now. Okay. He fought his way from a scullery rat to the king of the seas, and he will tolerate no defiance. Having hurled a latest victim into the sea, he cries his name as a war cry into the storm. Said latest victim is a small mouse maid. She struggles... I scrolled too far. She struggles to free herself from a rope around her neck and a spar of wood the rope the, t- the rope is tangled around. The sea batters her ruthlessly and she's finally lost to consciousness when the wood hits her soundly on the head. We do not know her fate. That bit is written really well because there's like a desperation mm-hmm. in her actions mm-hmm. that comes off so well in the writing. Mm-hmm. Um. Because she's clinging to this spar for dear life mm-hmm. with this, like, rope noose around her neck. Yeah. Okay. And you're just like, oh no, she's gonna die. Yeah. The storm hits Redwall. Dandon in the half-built bell tower is going at the log with a will. The wind nearly blasts him away, but he keeps at his task. He's called down by Mother Mellis, the Abbey Badger, wearing a well-worn flower sack. I really like the detail of Mother Mellis wearing a well-worn flower sack because, like, the material for flower sacks is useful fabric. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, in when, when Americans were, when white Americans from the East Coast were manifesting their destiny and, you know, destroying native cultures when they were moving west and shit like that, like, flower sacks started to be printed with like, pretty patterns on them, and that kept going into, like, the Great Depression and afterwards, like, you would just print the patterns on the flower sacks and uh, people would reuse them to make clothing because it was decent fabric yeah and it was a way to reuse the fabric when we still you know sold flour in fabric sacks to consumers Uh we don't do that any so much anymore like when you go to the store it's in paper Mm -hmm. um and i don't know how far back that goes specifically like people making flour sacks into clothing like, I'm not sure if that goes back to, like... I'm not sure how far back... The vague time period this is based on. Yeah, for me, I mostly associate it with the Great Depression, because that's where I always heard it brought up the most was during the Great Depression, yeah. at least here in the States. But um, it's always kind of been a trope in fantasies of, like, um, like not poor... Like, sometimes poor, but also sometimes, like air quotes, simpler characters or ones who live a humbler life. Like they'll just use sacks for clothing. It's kind of a trope in a, in a known in and yeah, of it's, itself. it's, it's the burlap. Yeah. Burlap is a rough, easy to make fabric. Yeah. Um, although now I'm questioning, like, why is she wearing a flower sack when she could have just taken the fabric used to package the flower before it became a flower sack? I would hazard... Well, okay. Ah, ha, ha. They're not so self-dependent as they like to pretend, huh? Um, Where's the flower coming from? <laughs> Where's the flower, flower coming from, Brian? Because they clearly <laughs> don't have the fields to grow it. Anyway, um, being a cheeky mouse, Dandon complies to her demands to come down this instant, 
by throwing himself over the abbey wall to be stopped short by the rope he tied around his waist. He's like, he's like inches from the ground level of stop short. Yeah. He's firmly cuffed for the stunt and tucked in Melissa's arm like a babe. She ignores his protests as they hurry to get inside the abbey. Which also, like, congratulations, sir. Now you aren't splatted against the ground, but now you've probably got a cracked rib or two. Yeah. And he's like, I can walk. She's like, yeah, I've, yeah, you're not going to be able to walk if you do that again. Uh-huh. And you could have just left a U-shaped hole in the dirt. <laughs> she scolds, he argues, and the two make it inside. And I love the by the weasel's whiskers. It's just it's such a cute saying. Like, what a good little thing to introduce <laughs> into the world. And I already like this, too, from this intro alone. I like Mellis for being kind of like the matronly, firm firm of hand matron. And then Dandon, She's who's the mother like, of Redwall. Yeah. And then Dandon, who's just, just a little bit of an imp. Just a little bit. Like, he lives up to his ancestor, which we will get to a little later. Um, <laughs> to which we enter a jovial scene of dinner. Here, the word Dibbon is also introduced for the first time, officially. And speaking of orphans, oh, speaking of the orphans that Mellis has rescued from around Mossflower. Which is just like a really sad but sweet image of her just like finding these poor lost kids and bringing them in to someplace safe. Um, we also learn the Abbey grows all its own produce, to which I went, hmm. I was like, I mean, if the grounds are large enough and they could be farming the land across the road because like the land that's across the road has been described as being fields but we know that in Redwall and uh, Madame Mayo they weren't farming it Nope. And not so only... it could have been like this is before they really really gotten a super mm-hmm. fantastic relationship with like all of Mossflower whereas yeah. in Redwall like people were bringing things into Redwall right the problem here, though, is that there's uh, no cows, no goats, there's no, no sheep. sheep. Um, there's they're not know, in the right environment for cotton. They're not in the right environment for cotton. Growing flour takes fields and time as well. Um, it's like they they can't be completely self sufficient because, like, I know Redwall is supposed to be a, an Eden XB, but. Even all the old monasteries back in the day that this place is based off of, they had peasant populations. Like, monasteries were in and of themselves often like mini fucking feudal state. Yeah, feudal states where they would have the peasants who would tithe to them instead of to a lord. Um, Because tithing to the monastery is tithing to the lord. Exactly. The the, the the lord lord. Lord. The lord. Um... (laughs) All right, back to it. But yeah, basically... I just shrug emojied yeah. at, like, Kit. Uh, us calling Brian out on his, his... his All right, it's a fantasy setting, but we're We still... cannot suspend our disbelief this much. <laughs> Gabe Quill, the hedgehog cellar keeper, is introduced... Is introduced. Flag, a big otter, swipes his drink and downs it in one go. His protestation of him being an horrible otter are countered by a Dibbon mole who corrects that you can have horrible owls, but otters is awful. <laughs> Which is just... Like, this little fucking child. He's so good! Hang on, where's his name? Where's his name? I think um, it's Grubbin or yeah, Grub? Yeah, it's Grub, because he comes up later on in the... 
He comes up a few times. Uh huh. Here, yeah, Grub, a baby mole, looked up at the gentle laughter. Wiping damps and jam from his snout, he shook a small digging pot, gave Quill. You can have an orrible owl, but Alters is orful. <laughs> I. To a very, very smart little mole. To which Sister Serena, the healer mouse, cleans the dibbon up and scolds him. Yabbit realizes the log has silenced, and when he asks what happened to Dandin, we hear the din coming from Cavern Hole. He's getting dried by Melus and scolded at the same time. She attempts to stuff him in an oversized habit, but Dandin makes a break for it. He dives between some woodlanders and is aided by Flag in avoiding being caught by Melus. He ducks under the table. She takes charge of the Dibbons and quickly forgets about the scamp, Dandin. Albert Bernard gives him the all-clear, praising him for his good work at the log. Simeon teases him he may one day become Abbot, and Dandin is little enthused with the idea. Albert Bernard- This this bit of foreshadowing, though, is kind of funny, because it's like- Because Dandin's name does not start with an M. Mm Mm-hmm. And we are still in that set of time where, like, all of the, like- characters that Martin's spirit latches on to, their names start with an M. Mm-hmm. So it's almost a little bit of a red herring, isn't it? Yeah. But then- I mean, I don't of... remember if Dandin or Mariel get like the spirit or if it's shared, whatever the fuck happens well, at the end of this. It, it's heavily implied that Mariel gets it, but Dandin is also kind of there to help her because um... We learn that Abra Bernard laughs and says Dandin must come from the line of Gonf. He laments Martin left no descendants, to which Simeon says none of flesh and blood. He's certain that Martin left spiritual descendants, though, that someday when needed, those Martin Mark beasts will appear to help the Abbey. Outside, the storm lashes on with terrifying ferocity. And... Brian here finally just up and openly making this canon that Martin can and will just like yeet his power into a mouse or creature that needs it at the time to help protect the Abbey. And also the, I love that we, we get the initial bait that Dandon might be the Martin chosen or the Martin possessed, but then the immediate switch to that. No, he's got this connection because he is Gaunt's ancestor. He won't be possessed by Martin. Descendant. Descendant. I'm sorry. I always do that. His descendant. But we get the switch that no, he won't be the one possessed slash uh, inspired by. He will be the friend who helps the one who is possessed slash inspired by yeah and i really like the fact that it like it's specifically mentioned like martin never like married or had children Mm -hmm. uh because (laughs) tim ballista was his husband (laughs) 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 they were husbands so next chapter We're shown Fort Bladegurt, the home and kingdom of Gabul. I want to say this really quick before we move on. I continued throughout the entirety of this part of the book, misread Bladegurt as Blade Dirt. Yeah, fair enough. It's the place sea rats go after plundering and pillaging to enjoy some shore leave. Gabul lounges on a throne bedecked with the skin of his slain challengers, sir... 
Like, this is such a level of barbarity that we have not seen yet. Because what we have seen so far has been bones yeah, like, and skulls. Which, which to me, a bones and skulls are, like, not more acceptable, but, like, more uh, common? Common, you yeah. Don't, you don't see depictions of people wearing human skins, at least not very often. Um, because when, when you do, they're depicted as the most just like corrupt, barbaric and despicable. Yeah. Which um, I think is what Brian was trying to get across here. It's like, yeah, he's just lounging upon like the hides of all of these other like rats. Yeah. He pulled it off. Uh, he's, Oh, which yet again, we are also just, this is a very rat heavy book. Very rat heavy. I don't think, you know, we actually haven't seen any other vermin in this book except for the rats and then the frogs slash toads. And, like, um, the lizard and the snake. Oh, yeah. But they, the, the snake doesn't even get any lines this time around. No. Um, and he, there's a bird. And there's a bird. One bird. Bird. One bird. There's always birds. One bird. There's at least always one bird. <laughs> he stares at his favorite bit of plunder yet. A massive, intricately cast bell with beautiful tones and mysterious, to him, symbols and writing all around it. He struts about it to admire it more. A sea rat called Half-Nose tells him to give it a good hit to make it ring and offers a cudgel to Gabool. Quick as a flash, Gabool bludgeons Half-Nose with his own cudgel and knocks him headfirst into a barrel of wine. No one touches the bell but Gabool. And... It's, it's interesting because, like, just in this first introduction alone, Brian has very definitively set Gabool apart from, like, and he's, like, since we're, again, we're only four books in. We've only seen four villains so far, or three villains before Gabool. But the one yeah. we would naturally want to compare him to is Clooney. And already Gabool has very different vibes than Clooney does. Gabool is... Gosh, it's hard to articulate it. I keep trying to articulate it through the the series, but it's like Clooney is a tsunami. Gabool is a thunderstorm. Clooney is like the subtle threat until he finally shows his true colors. Gabool just shows up right out of the bat. I am going to be a problem and I am going to make, make it your problem as well, you know? Yeah. And he's very, like, I don't know how to describe it other than he's more savage than Clooney. Clooney's a thinker. Clooney's a general. This guy is just a straight-up bully. Like, he's very, very smart as well, but, mm -hmm. like, Clooney was more inclined to use his wits when it came to his enemies mm -hmm. than just straight-up violence. Mm -hmm. Whereas he used straight-up violence with his men. Mm-hmm. With Gabool, he's honestly a, a equal mix of both. Yeah. Because to him, his men are his enemies. Yeah, pretty much. Because of the way they've got this set up. Whoever holds Fort Blade Girt is king of the sea rats. And with this violence-based society, you know inevitably you will fall. Um, yeah. So you, everyone is your enemy because anyone could take you down at any point. Mm -hmm. I also, so there's, there's, there has to be a difference between us reading this, like even when we were younger, both Mariel of Redwall and Joseph and the Bellmaker were out. Mm -hmm. Those two books existed and were out when we started reading these books. Yeah. 
I wonder what it was like for people who read this as the books were coming out to read this and not have that little bit of context with, oh, we're going to see the bellmaker part of this story in a different book. Because mm-hmm. that's the book that focuses on Joseph the Bellmaker. Yeah. It's quite sad so to I'm, know how it ends, though. Yeah. I, I'm just, like, I'm curious, like, um, I wonder, like, I don't know when Sarpedon specifically started reading these, but, like, Ben, do you have any insight into this? <laughs> and anybody else who has been reading these books since the fucking 80s? <laughs> Like, give us your insight on this. I want to know, like, what it felt like to read this and not know the bits of other things that were happening with this. Mm-hmm. Because also, like, Salamandistron hadn't come out yet, and we've uh, seen Sunflash the Mace mentioned twice. Mm-hmm. Although we do know who he is thanks to Redwall, but um, regardless. Yeah, but, like, we don't... We don't know we also, like, him don't we don't know his story he's just been mentioned he's like a figure of myth that we've seen kind of and had mentioned and now we've got this thing where it's like there's a story behind joseph and mariel before they got captured by kabul right so like i want to know like what was it like reading these and then having the other books come out and learning more about this timeline yeah Please, give us youngins your thoughts. So, he jests that if Half Nose makes it out of the wine, to give him a cup to revive him. The other rats all find this hilarious, except for Bloodrig, the captain of a ship named Greenfang. Gabool notices and decides it's time to do something about the mounting tension between him and the captain. He plays the drunk, offering wine to Bloodrig, but Bloodrig's not having it. Everything stops as the wild crowd senses a good fight's to be seen. Gabul offers food next, and again Bloodrig says no. When asked what he wants, he says he wants his share of the plunder. Three trips now, and no pay. Others mutter in agreement. Agreeing easily, he leaves Bloodrig flat-footed. The expected fight seemingly called off as Gabul plays at being hurt by the other's mistrust. He gives Bloodrig a beautiful coronet. The sea rat thinks he's done it. He's made Gabul back down. He puffs up to gloat, and with a quick change of mood, Gabul reveals his true colors, beheading Bloodrig. And again, like, here's Brian establishing the kind of villain that Gabul is. He's the kind who will, like, he's very quick to, like, oh, cozy on up to somebody. Like, I'm not a threat. You're right. You're totally right. And then the minute that their back is turned or they've calmed down, out comes the sword and whoop, off goes the head or into the gut or what have you. Um, he's just, he's he's more smooth, or he, he like Clooney was smooth and sly and confident. Gabul is loud, self-assured, and quick to use his violence as soon as his wits are no longer useful. Well, see, but in this particular moment, he was using his wits to lead to the violence. You said a quick change of mood. It's obvious reading this scene, Gabul's intention was to kill Bloodrig the yeah, whole time. that's true. Like, it's not a change of mood. Like, he was lulling Bloodrig into a false sense of security to kill him. He was using his wits to lead to the violence because every 
person, like every sea rat is his enemy mm-hmm. and not just his men. Mm-hmm. Whereas Clooney could be violent and did not necessarily need to be witty with his men. He, yeah, his men, they didn't, maybe they didn't exactly trust him, but they respected him. And he, he, he only ever had to use a show of force to get their power, to get their respect. Um, yeah. It probably also helped that there isn't the established, like, base where people can squabble over. They were a traveling band of miscreants, you know. Yeah. And Sarmina was Sarmina. Yeah. A queen. Everybody was afraid of her mm-hmm. because she had a history, an ancestry mm-hmm. to back her up. Of that violence. And like, yeah, she was very smart. She was very witty. But she would just murk you. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you could just die. Yeah. So, you know, be nice. (laughs) Do what she says. And then Slagger was not quick to use violence. Yeah. He He only used it when absolutely necessary. He relied very heavily on his wits. Yeah, because he didn't have the physical prowess that these other three villains had. Nor did he have the, the the physical base and resources that they had. Yeah, because even if he Clooney... had a small band of men, yeah, and he relied on other outlying circumstances to kill them. Exactly, um, he made good use of his uh, resources. Um, yes. So like, I think there's only like once or twice that he outright killed one of his men, mm-hmm. and it was because they were being. You know, disrespectful, disrespectful. Sassy. Yeah, they were being too smart, yeah. etc. And he was like, well, "Can't have that. Uh, I'm going to push you over a cliff." Yeah, or just stab you in the gut with your own sword. Um, yep. We find the mouse maid washed ashore. She survived the storm, and with the accidental help of a gull, coughs up the water in her lungs. Enough- like she's got that piece of wood across her back, and this gull just lands on her. Mm-hmm. And presses down on this piece of wood, and it makes her just barf up water. Yeah. It's an unfortunate set of imagery that just happens, because that's what happens when your lungs are full of water. Uh Uh-huh. Another boulder gull comes up to investigate her as a potential meal, and she sends it on its way with a well-aimed slap of the rope that that had once been around her neck. She crawls further inland and curls up under some long grass to sleep, she has no memory of who she is or where she's from, likely from the bad wound on her head. One thing she is sure of, she must be a fighter, half dead, and she could chase off a gull with just a knotted rope. One thing she's sure of, she's alive. Heck of a chance. This book has really good chapter endings. Um, it does. Abra Bernard is up first thing to inspect the grounds for damage the morning after the storm. He's relieved to see there's not too much. Downed branches and saplings, some crops ruined or thrown awry, and a shutter gone from the gatehouse. Nothing's an emergency, so he decides to ask the formal crew to help with cleanup and repairs after breakfast. Freed from the abbey, the Divins have a grand time cleaning up fallen fruit from the orchards and strawberry patches. Twin otters bag and run joke of strawberry trees which thoroughly puzzles Dury Quill the nephew of Gabe Quill they lead the little hedgehog on a merry tale they're talking about strawberry trees and how they like (laughs) oh they're light as a feather they'll float away with the lightest breeze and the storm just took them all away Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
Let's see. There he goes. And Dory's like, really? You never seed a strawberry tree. Dear, oh dear. Why, they're great giant things with blue speckly leaves. Very light, of course. Only weigh as much as two goose feathers. That's why the wind blowed them all away. Whoosh! Straight over the top of the abbey walls. The gullible Dury looked from one to the other, half convinced. Run nodded, serious agreement, and continued the story. It's right. I seed it myself from the dormitory window. Way away they blowed, all those poor old great strawberry trees, carried off by the wind to the Gunglaboo Mountains where the Grunglipods live. A half-eaten strawberry <laughs> dropped from Dury's open mouth. Grunglyboo Mountains where Gunglipods live? What? Where would be that? <laughs> Dandon and his harvest mouse friend Saxtus watch amused as the gullible dur little Dury is taken hook, line, and sinker. They come to the rescue of Dury, scolding the twins and teasing that they'll be carried off by the big pink water bogle, which I love how these two are immediately established as like the leaders of the kids. Like they're old enough to be looked up to, even if they're still in that kind of kid age group. Yeah. Um, like they don't really have a lump for teenagers in this series. So that's kind they're of. They're not dibbins, but they're not adults. Right. They're old enough to help, not old enough to be responsible but yeah um not abashed in the least the twins gigglingly tell they've been carried off twice already and the water bogle has sworn to never take them off again the fun is interrupted by simeon calling for the older mouse boys it's time for lessons they try to hide but can't fool simeon he can hear and smell all of them and sends the dibbins off to help with chores Brother Hubert is the recorder. Even if the abbey is young, his gatehouse is already stacked with old books and scrolls. He lets the boys wait while finishing up some writing before snapping pointed questions about punctuality at them. Like, the passive aggressiveness on display here is impressive. <laughs> I don't like teachers that are like this. <laughs> um, I don't... I don't know. He... I feel like him taking out some of his annoyance in this way is better than other teachers I've known. Yeah, but he calls like them he's names. he's making he oh. Where where are the names? He calls them puddinheads. Oh, puddinheads. Oh, puddinheads. Not too bad, but yeah, agreed. And that's still like listen. If you had been like in sixth grade and your teacher called you a puddinhead, <laughs> fair enough. I would have cried. Oh, fair enough. He asked the boys to recite the charter. Dandon stutters through parts, while Saxtus breathes through it easily. Hubert gently reprimands Dandon for only being confident with the parts regarding war and treachery. He asks, Gee, I wonder who his uh, ancestor might be. <laughs> he, asks, he asks Saxtus what they're doing in the Great Hall. He isn't sure, but Dandon is. They're making the tapestry... Three and a half seasons in, the Abbey brothers and sisters and various woodlanders are all working on it. When asked how he knows this is, it's confirmed Dandon is a descendant of Gonf, to which I put, no wonder he's cheeky. Um, yep. <laughs> Hubert, Thankfully, he's not a thief no, yet. Yet. No, it, it seems like he's inherited that spirit of keeping his friends and family safe and just generally being impish and being prone to music. But otherwise, he seems to have not picked up some of the other traits of his uh, ancestor. Um, Hubert gives Dandon a lovely flute with a letter G carved into it. 
He says it was made for Gonf, but he left it in the Abbey, saying it was far too fancy for him. Hubert figures it stands by all rights. We also supposedly, learned... yeah, like supposedly, Abbas Germain made it and gave it to him. Six generations at Saint Ninian's Church, and the Abbey is still considered young. Six generations. That's that's a long time. Like, we were saying, like, what, three to four generations is like a hundred years? Yeah, because if you think about it, because, like, my my grandpa on my father's side was, he he fought, like, in World War II, um, and then there's my dad, who was born in, the, like, the 50s or 60s, and there's me, who was born in the 90s. Like, there's, like, generations are, like, that's a lot of time. Three generations of yeah. people, that can be a hundred year span easily. Six generations. Yeah. Also, where are Dandin's parents? Yeah, his parents, or if he had any siblings, they're just never spoken They don't of. live at St. Ninian's anymore? Maybe they do, and Dandin just decided, I'm going to go live at the Abbey, but he never talks about them. Got it. I just had flashbacks to Sora's mom. Sora, it's time for dinner! Never mentioned throughout the, for the next 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> What mom? He has no mom. <laughs> he has no mother. <laughs> she was a side ponytail mom. Oh no! <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Namura, why do you hate women so much? Anyway. Uh, Dandan is just, dazzled. Oh, how sorry. long has the Abbey been there for? It, because it's like... It is not implied or suggested whatsoever that Dandin came from St. Ninian's. But, yeah. It's just said that Gonf's family lived there for six generations. And something about him ties him to Gonf, so. Because it's, like, brought up at some point that he's, like, father's father, 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 blah blah Uh-huh. So. And it's like, what? Where the fuck did Dandin come from? Right! <laughs> And how long has the Abbey been here? Because six generations is almost 200 years. That's a long time. Yeah. It just... Uh, oh, oh, although, hold up, though. Could it be... No, he ends up marrying that gal who came from Lomehedge, so, yeah. Columbine, yeah. So, unless, unless Gaunt's family already lived at St. Ninian's beforehand, and he just kind of... They kinda... didn't, because it was abandoned. Yeah, well... I... Brian, why do you do this to us? It's like Brian timelines. Brian, <laughs> how is two hundred? I okay. You know what? We're American. America <laughs> hasn't what hasn't existed for even three hundred years. No, we just had our bicentennial like ten ish, ten twenty years ago. I know because I've got a crap ton of the bicentennial quarters. My grandfather gave them to me. Um, yeah, and England. <laughs> has been around for a very much longer amount of time. Right. So 200 years in the grand scheme of England... Is nothing. Is nothing. Yeah. That's very young. You know what? I'll, so, okay, I'll give them that. Because, like, there's there are still places in England where you can find the remnants of the Roman civil... of When Rome came in, mucked everything up, and then took off without a buy your leave, you know? Yeah, they um, fucking tear up a parking lot and find an archaeological dig. They find a king of England when they tear up a parking lot! What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Richard IV! Um, <laughs> but that, that, that's actually 
actually a big problem in Europe too. And I, that I always makes me laugh because um, in Europe, especially like in places like Spain or England or like places where the Romans were there, um, if they go to dig something up, it is a Russian roulette of, are we going to be able to actually build the car lot or the basement or the building we want to build? Or are we going to have to stop for three or four years so an archeological team can come in and see what we found? <laughs> there are straight up places where they went to build something and then they just had to stop because they found a huge chunk of a Roman town that had been preserved. And they're like, well, I guess we got to turn this into a museum now. Well, um, <laughs> anyway, so Dandan is dazzled and promised to do his best to learn to play it. He hopes that Dandan will play it. Oh, sorry. Uh, Hubert hopes that Dandan will play it at the Abbot's Jubilee Feast in three days time. Convenient how these books always start on Jubilee Feasts. After hearing... He... It's almost like starting in the middle of summer gives Brian, like, the best, like, environmental descriptions to use. Uh-huh. After hearing their happy whoops of glee, he he sends them on their way. He ends them on their way. Typo. <laughs> there are so many typos. I fixed some of them, but not all of I'm them. I'm sorry. I, we're, we're you taking... were tired when you did this. I did. We're, we're taking a month-long break after this recording where we are not going to read or record anything for a month, partially because I'm going to bugger off to Canada with Fluna for a few weeks. but And also I am experiencing the burnout. Yeah, so if we fumble a little bit during this episode, guys, that is partially why, and thank you for your patience. Um, anyway, Sister Sage had been re resting on the wall top and comes down expressing joy at seeing the two young ones having so much fun. She joins in their frolicking. It's really cute and then brother hubert attempts a little caper but sends dust and his glasses flying a quick check to see no one was watching and he retreats to his gatehouse and his dignity to which i put big cat energy <laughs> so and cute. i just i really like it in like fiction when adults get to act like kids for a minute because like having fun where you're just kind of cavorting around is not just for, like, kids. Like, you can just go and fucking cavort if you want to. That's so sweet. Just let Brother Hubert skip. Also, the fact that he's <laughs> constantly described as, like, shedding dust just constantly makes you think of Pigpen. Just, like... <laughs> I, have a, I have a bigger note on it later on. Um, it's very funny. Okay, next chapter. Midday sees the hungover rats heading out to sea. That was not intentional. Gabul had... <laughs> had given the green fang to a dim but exceedingly loyal rat named Gartail. His plan was to make sure he'd meet up with and gossip with Saltaire, the captain of the Dark Queen and brother of the slain Bloodrig. Saltaire is known is a known fierce is fighter. Is it is it Saltaire or Saltar? Saltar? Because there's not an I in there. That's true. It's probably so Saltar. It's not like Saltar the Corsair. Saltar the Corsair. But Gabul isn't afraid. Twitch, there's another scene where Gabul just throws a seabird, a dead seabird that has already been cooked out the window. Brian, why do you keep thinking that showing these villains throwing food, specifically birds, out a window is a good thing, Brian? Why is this a thing that has it's happened? It's not a good thing. It's it's showing that they don't care about waste. No, I'm not saying it's a good thing. But I mean, like, why he... Eh, I know, they don't care about waste. They're evil. But, like... If I had a nickel for every time this happened, I'd have two nickels, but it's strange it happened twice. Um, 
He I mean, to be fair, the Red Wallers also seem to waste food in a way. Uh, I mean, with all the feasts they have, but they do try to eat all of it. And I, I always thought the implication was that whatever they didn't eat went home with whoever was visiting. Um, Maybe. I don't know. It's it's a weird, like, uh, parallel of excess. It is very much so. We've talked about this, like, back in the first book. We talked about how the gluttony is good when it's the heroes, but gluttony is bad when yeah. it's the villains. Yeah. Um, with the heroes, this, this kind of... with the heroes, it's an appreciation of the wealth that they have in food. With the villains, it's gobbling down wealth that they don't have. Yeah, or and have like, stolen. It's it doesn't always like it doesn't usually sit right with me with the way that it's written because this is coming. So the the villains in these books are typically the outcasts from society. They're the ones with nothing. They're the ones who have to fight and claw and steal for what they can get. Mm-hmm. And when they have excess, they become tyrants and warlords, etc. But the people who have everything and don't have to worry about anything are shown as the good ones because they don't have to fight for what they need. I don't know. That parallel of excess feels bad because, like, I have had to fight and steal for things before. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a bad person. It, it feels like they're applying this kind of level of tyrannical badness, like they, as in Brian, yeah. um, to these bad guys who are the outcasts of society in a way that just, it doesn't work. Mm-mm. Especially, not in a modern lens, at least, because, like, we see that kind of behavior with the people who don't have to worry about anything. Yeah. Where they're wasteful, full of excess, and yet they still steal and lie and cheat for things. Yeah. It's, you know what? It's a lot like the bougie class, kind of. Because I mean, the Red Wallers are always quick to share what they have, which is probably the big difference here. The Red Wallers yeah. share what they have. They're always open to sharing the excess that they have. Whereas the villains hoard it for themselves. For example, like, Gabool could solve a lot of his problems if he was just willing to share his riches. What's he gonna do with them? Sit and stare at them? He's a dragon. Yeah, he's a dragon! So, anyways, back to Gabool, though. Um, he sets up a trap behind a wall hanging. A dagger stuck in a crack... A dagger stuck into a crack hilt first, so the blade sticks out. This done, his attention is caught by the bell. He's mesmerized by the sounds it makes, striking it with claws, bracelets, and even biting it. Honestly, autistic mood right there. Me want bite sound. (laughs) Me want bite. I've done that before. I've done that before, where it's like, it's like something makes a noise, so I just put my teeth on it and make it make the noise again. <laughs> I don't know. It, it feel good. Listen, it's sim. Me want bite sound. <laughs> he he promises he promises the bell that it will be hung in his fortress someday to sound out over the ocean. On an impulsive change of mood, he darts out of the room and deeper into his lair, down to the dungeons. He dismisses the guards. And he's very mercurial, like his mood changes on a dime, it seems like. Um, yeah. He speaks to Joseph, the bellmaker, a mouse. Will he finally work for him? Starved and beaten, Joseph is in a sorry state. 
Still, he has the fire to refuse Gabul's offer. Gabul ignores his refusal once, but upon a second refusal, brings on brings in Joseph's daughter as a bargaining chip. Not actually physically brings her in, but brings her up. I wrote that poorly. Joseph doesn't know, after all, that his daughter has been thrown into sea. We also learn the bell was made for Salamandastron, um, as an aside. Joseph still refuses. Gabul offers to show Joseph his daughter, and the poor tired mouse is too happy to see the tre treachery behind it. Taken out of his cell, he's led up to the bell, where he reads the poem inscribed upon it. So basically, Gavul is like touching the bell and he like asks like, tell me what the little pictures and strange words around the top and bottom of my bell mean. Joseph shuffled anxiously around the bell, his mind preoccupied with thoughts of his daughter as he reluctantly read out, read off the rhyme at its base. I will ring for wedding times when two hearts unite. I will toll the hours out all daytime and through night. I will wake good creatures up from their beds each morning, or toll when they're in danger a clear and brazen warning. For all the family, son and daughter, husband and good wife, I will boom a sad farewell when they must leave this life. For many great occasions, for many different reasons, listen and my voice you'll hear throughout the changing seasons. Though I may boom, clang, peal, or toll, command and use me well, but hark, beware the evil ones who will misuse this bell. And Gabool calls this fucking trash and then he'll yeah. have it filed off someday. Yeah. And then he's like, what do the pictures mean? And Joseph's like, I honestly, I got no fucking clue, man. <laughs> who are they to understand the ways of badger lords? Because it was a badger lord who commissioned this bell. When he asks again to see his daughter, Gabool gives his answer, shoving the poor bell maker out of an open window, presumably to his death. See, that's... Kit originally misread this section and had it down that Gabool shoved Joseph oh, onto the dagger he'd stabbed into the wall. I completely missed the line of Gabool led him to the open window. I missed that because my I skipped over it because my brain just went to, we just established the dagger in the wall. So my brain thought, oh, he'll just use the dagger. Um, no, that's for something completely different. Yeah, that's for Saltar. He just okay. fucking shoves Joseph out the window. Yeah. And we don't actually get a line saying that Joseph is dead, so we don't, we assume. That's true. That's why it says presumably to his death. We don't know if Joseph is dead. That's true, yeah. And again, like, a lot of these books, I'm not going to remember what happened in them, because I don't even remember all the ones that I did read back in the day. Um, yeah. Some of them I'll probably remember as I start reading them, but um, this one is one that I don't really remember reading. But anyway, um, skipping to the daughter of Joseph, the mousemaid makes her way. We assume. We assume, yeah. The mousemaid makes her way along the desolate shore, aching for water and food, but water most of all. And I don't know what is this book, but Brian is so good at setting the mood in this book. This scene is so vivid. And... Brian is firing on all cylinders here. Like, you can feel how hot it is, how miserable it is. And, like, anyone who's been on the beach or played in the ocean for just a little too long, you know what it does to your body. You start to crave fresh water because all that salt, all that sand, it takes the moisture right out of you. And it's miserable yep. if you can't get to some clean water soon enough. Need, need that water. 
As I take a sippy. The H2O. Take a fucking sippy. <sighs> Keep hydrated. Um, drink your fucking Hydrate water. Hydrate or dehydrate. Yeah. The first sign of life she spots, other than the waiting scavenger gulls, is a little lizard who tells her she's far from water and won't make it off the beach alive. Like, this little lizard I is... love the way it's described that this lizard is just, like, bobbing its head up and down. Yeah. He's... It's just a little lizard. I, I was imagining, like, an anole or something, even though those don't live in England, I don't think. No. Not like but, that. like, just a little anole just bobbing its head. Watch her far away. You know her, lizard. You die soon. Never make it to drink water. Too far. Soon now, they eat you. And it's 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 such a little non-sequitur. Like, he's he's there and he's gone. And I don't know if he ever comes back up again. He's just like, hello, I'm the lizard. I don't think he here. does. He does? Uh, no, I don't think he yeah, does. Yeah, he's just kind of there. I guess, like, this is the closest thing to... He's just like, hello, goodbye. It was nice to know you. Um... listening. If you like this podcast and want to help keep it going, please consider donating to our coffee, linked in the description below. Follow our Twitter and Tumblr at Abbey Archives and join our Discord. This podcast is part of Hearthside Enclave, and some other shows you might like are Hope's Hearth, a solar hope punk actual play podcast, and Post-Apocalyptic News Radio, a Fallout-inspired audio drama.